Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new legal developments in the Missouri education community. If you're a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we're going to be talking about recent legal challenges regarding mass mandates or the lack of a mass mandate in your school district. We're including the AG's putative class action against the Columbia Public Schools that was recently filed and um, the implications of House Bill 271 that may apply and the governor's most recent executive order and the removal of the state of emergency that has been in place since March and replacing it with a new state of emergency. So lots of things to talk about there, but with all of this legal activity, school leaders need to be prepared to deal with complaints and challenges associated with mass mandates, or even some of the challenges that go with not having a mass mandate. As we all know, some Missouri school districts have implemented some variant of a mass ma mandate, uh, some have not. For those that haven't, uh, a number of issues are around the corner dealing with quarantine requirements and attendance issues. Uh, these issues may change a district's legal position or a position on mass mandates. Um, for those districts that do have a mass mandate, well, there have been a number of legal issues raised with respect to those particular mandates. These include whether the mandate has to be approved by the Board of Education as opposed to being promulgated by the superintendent, whether it is uh, arbitrary or capricious or somehow unconstitutional for the district to impose a mask mandate. For those districts that, that don't have a masking requirement put in place, um, it becomes a question of if the district is potentially liable for being reckless for not having such a requirement. And if no mask mandate is in place, will the quarantining requirements cause substantial disruption to school operations due to attendance issues? All these questions begat even more questions in light of the most recent legal developments. How does the AG's uh, recent lawsuit against Columbia Public Schools fit into this? Are we required under HB 271 to have any mask mandate put before the board and then revisited periodically? How does the governor's executive order uh, last week fit into the picture, if at all? So there's no shortage of questions to deal with uh, surrounding mass mandates um, at this point. And uh, there are even fewer clear answers, unfortunately. But here to help us kind of sort through it all, as usual, is my partner, Emily Almahundro. Hello. How are you doing today, Emily? I'm doing all right. Just trying to make sense in a world that is not making a lot of sense right now. So we'll try to uh, remain coherent. It is a lot. Um, I'm sure a lot of our uh, school clients are out there trying to figure some of these things out as well. Um, probably the best place to start uh, the discussion is whether mass mandates have to be approved by the board or if they can simply be implemented by the administration. That's kind of a a good starter for us, Emily. Why don't you give us your thoughts there? Well, I think that um, the language of House Bill 271 is not entirely clear regarding whether a school district mask mandate 
would need to be approved by the board, but we can tell from the attorney general's lawsuit against Columbia Public Schools that there is this concept that it should be approved, any mask mandate should be approved by a board of education in the given district. And so um, from a procedural legal perspective, it seems that the safest course of action in order to cut off any argument that a mask mandate is improper when it isn't approved by the board, going ahead and having it approved by the board would be the safest course of action. Okay, let's break that down a little bit. Um, so last year, we had a lot of districts that had mask mandates that were approved by the administration, but not necessarily put before the board. Would you agree that there is a, a superintendent generally is going to have the authority under board policies to make that kind of decision? Yes, because it is not a decision that is statutorily or otherwise legally required to be a board decision. Okay, so it's really kind of it's centered on this HB 271 issue and whether or not it applies, right? Exactly. So within HB 271, um, there are a number of things. And as you said, it is not clear under the statute, um, you know, what the scope or application in some instances. But there, the argument seems to be centered around probably two major concepts. One is that um, the definition of public uh, political subdivision. And um, at one point it says in there that it refers to a political subdivision as uh, defined or, or identified in a particular statute, which then defines a political subdivision to be um, a uh, one in which it's in a county, county that's a first class county that has a city that's non-chartered and is has a city with a population uh, over, I think, 350,000 or something. So it's, it's very specifically defined. Um, so there's an argument that it doesn't apply to a lot of school districts in that respect. So we know that. But what about the idea of a mass mandate as a public health order under the statute? What do you think of that, Emily? So I think that is about as confusing as anything else about House Bill 271, because on the one hand, I think we could make the argument that school districts, anything that they would um, require wouldn't constitute a public health order because the political subdivision of school districts is really not an entity that we would think of as issuing public health orders, right? Um, that's something that we would consider would be done by things like county commissions, city councils, health departments. Um, but at the same time, I think that 271 was written in such a way that it's so unclear that things like mask mandates, occupancy limits that are obviously related to a public health crisis like COVID-19, I think there could be the argument made that mask mandates and um, occupancy limits and that sort of thing um, are, do constitute a public health order. It's just not clear. So, um, 
again, since we don't have definitions, a good definition section in the statute, like we see in some other statutes, um, I think we have to make our best guess at it, don't you? I do. Um, you know, the the language is broad enough that it could be arguably a public health order if it's from the school district, but I think you have a, a an equally good argument that it it's not. And so um, we'll see how that plays itself out, perhaps. Uh, but assuming that it that uh, that 271 does apply, which may not be a safe assumption, but if it if it does apply, what do we think is the safest course for uh, school districts when it comes to whether or not they put this before the board? The safest course would be to go ahead and have those things that we would think would be considered public health orders like mask mandates and occupancy limits put before the board every 30 days in order to cut off any sort of legal argument that the district failed to procedurally comply with 271. Well, let's talk through that because the language you're referring to is, is a 271 requirement that if you promulgate such a public health order, then you have to put it before the governing body Mm-hmm. every 30 days, right? Um, so a lot of districts have something that's been approved by their board in a in a return to learn plan. Are, are you saying that to, assuming that 271 applies, then districts would be required to take that back to their board every 30 days? I think that the safest course of action would be to take the at minimum, the provisions of the return to learn plan that relate to things that would be considered a public health order could be considered a public health order under 271 back to the board at the monthly board meeting every month. Yeah. Okay. So with respect to that, um, it what's I'm trying to think this through and talk about it from a practical point of view, Emily. If we have um, superintendents out there boards out there that are not interested in having the type of rodeo that might be associated with putting this in front of the board um, uh, from time to time, meaning each month, um, then, you know, what is the risk here? What's the risk if they say we say, for instance, they have the board approve it in in one time Uh and then just don't take it back each month? I understand that somebody can make the argument that they're not in compliance with 271, but how does that play itself out? Uh, can they can they wait until somebody challenges them and then perhaps put it before the board at that point? Uh, you know, sure. How, how yeah, that's happen? kind of like option B, right? So option A, the most conservative route would be to have the board um, go ahead and approve every 30 days. If that doesn't feel like a fun agenda item every month, then um, perhaps we would wait and see if we would have a challenge to the a mask mandate, for instance. Um, and then if that were to happen, somebody would have to file suit against the district and essentially try to get, um, I mean, I think when we talked about this last, we were looking at the fact that somebody would maybe try to get a declaratory judgment, right, Dwayne? Right. Um, about the applicability of 271 to the school. And then um, try to prevent the board or the district, I guess I would say, from implementing the mask mandate 
Um, and so, I mean, obviously filing a lawsuit and then getting a hearing before a judge takes some time. So um, option B, instead of approving it every 30 days, would be to wait and see if you get that legal challenge. And if you get served with the lawsuit, then uh, pull the board together um, with your 24 hours sunshine law notice and have them vote on it. And that kind of sweeps that argument, that procedural 271 argument out from under a plaintiff in that situation. So that that's certainly an option. Yeah. Okay. So it could become moot in effect by, you know, um, okay. Well, that's one piece of it that I wanted to talk about. The other thing that comes up in the AG's lawsuit and in his claims against uh, Columbia public schools is that it, that it is arbitrary and capricious to, you know, approve a, or implement a mask mandate as to students. Um, and I want you to talk about that a little bit, Emily, and, and what some of the arguments that are being made by the attorney general and perhaps what uh, there might be some, <laughs> what are some of the uh, faults, if you will, in, in that argument? Well, the attorney general is basically arguing that there are all of these medical sources that cite um, the negative effect of masking on students, on their happiness, um, their ability to effectively learn and communicate. And that, um, you know, if a school district is relying, that, that, that a board who makes a decision for a mask mandate has made an arbitrary and capricious decision because it goes against what Attorney General Schmidt is saying is the common scientific medical knowledge out there about the detrimental effects of masks. Okay, so... What are some of the weaknesses in that argument, and how do you think school districts uh, may be able to co- overcome that? Well, I think the major flaw in that argument is that while there are a number of sources cited by the attorney general, um, he doesn't cite the um, most prominent and uh, public CDC guidance or DHSS guidance regarding. Uh, COVID-19 and the use of masks. So, um, and then there's not any mention of, uh, for instance, DESE's reopening guidelines um, and recommendations either. So, um, you know, there's an entire body of work and data out there that is ignored in favor of the sources that are cited by the Attorney General. So, I mean, I think that for every study, I mean, in some of the studies that were done um, or that were cited by the attorney general are not from the United States. So um, there's that. But I mean, I think that there's certainly medical expert information that is out there that would contradict the um, points that the attorney general has made in his lawsuits and school districts can certainly use those to show that this decision is not arbitrary and capricious. I mean, I think we could argue, um, this, the people on either side of the masking argument could 
show lots of work on both sides that supports their arguments. I mean, I'm not a medical expert, so I'm not going to weigh in on how legitimate those studies and sources are, but that's not really the point, right? The point is that um, we would need to be able to demonstrate that a board decision for masking is not arbitrary and capricious. And I think that standard is um, a relatively easy standard for a district to meet um, in terms of legal standards to show that there was some thought and rationale behind any sort of masking decision. So, and just to kind of sum that up, basically what you're saying is that, okay, if you assume that the science is split, right. uh, which may or may not be a safe assumption, yeah. Um, yeah. above and beyond that, you've got, you're basically saying that the, the attorney general is arguing that a school district, by following the guidance from the federal government and the state government, they are acting in a way that is arbitrary and capricious. Exactly. I think that's a tough, I think that's a tough argument to make. Uh, yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you in, on that score. The uh, It just seems to me that uh, um, it's a bit of a stretch from a legal point of view. Um, the uh, We'll see how that plays itself out, but it just, uh, that's a very difficult argument. I think he's chosen to make there, at least from a legal perspective, as opposed to a political perspective. Um, I want to kind of flip the the uh, agenda there. Um, what if a school district has not implemented a mask mandate? Um, you know, we have a lot of districts that are not uh, going down that road. They're not imposing a mask mandate. Um, do you think that that may cause some complications when it comes to quarantining requirements and that sort of thing? So, um, you know, we've had some conversations with clients since school opened, basically, because um, school districts who don't have mask mandates are having to quarantine students, unvaccinated students who are not masked because, you know, some local health departments have said, um, you know, if you have this universal mask requirement in your district and kids are at least three feet apart and all the parties are masked, you know, pursuant to a school district's mask mandate, then uh, those individuals are not considered close contacts and don't have to quarantine. So the issue that we're running up against there, it, not all local health departments are going with that, but some are. And so um, for districts who don't have a mask mandate in place and are having to quarantine kids, we're now getting questions about, well, what if we just don't what if we don't want to identify close contacts? And what if we don't want to quarantine kids at this level? Because, um, you know, we're seeing kids have to go home and stay home for a long time and we want them here. We want them in person. Um, so, so we are getting questions about that. And, um, you know, unless your local health department is going to give you the okay to not report close contacts to them or um, to not, quarantine students who are identified as close contacts, I think that presents a high level of risk for districts. Well, and it also, doesn't it also play into the, um, the whole argument about arbitrary and capricious? Because if, if I do put a mass mandate in place and then I'm going to have less of an attendance issue and I'm going to have kids in school, 
um, as opposed to if I don't put in a mask mandate and now I've got these quarantining requirements that have to be complied with. And now we're going to have, a, a, you know, potentially a number of attendance issues. So it gives you another defense, right? Oh, I think it absolutely does. Because if our local health department is supportive of not quarantining kids who are masking in a district where there is a universal mask requirement, then that again, that's, you're right. That's just another rationale that the board could use to say, yeah, this wasn't arbitrary and capricious at all. Our goal is to have kids in seat. And if kids are masked and our local health department's allowing them to stick around, even if they were, you know, exposed while they were masked, um, you know, that's a strong argument in favor of having a mask mandate that isn't arbitrary and capricious as well. You know, one other aspect of the attorney general's lawsuit that I wanted to touch upon, Emily, is that of uh, it, it being a putative class action. Um, in the allegations, it does talk about the potential for making a, a, this a class that would apply to other school districts. And I just I just want to mention that, you know, I think that, uh, that, you know, for our listeners out there, they need to understand that there are a whole host of procedural <laughs> hoops that have to be jumped through before a class could be certified in such a way uh, in this instance that would uh, allow uh, the decision in the Boone County Circuit Court to impact them directly. Um, and just that, uh, you know, there has to be a commonality among those school districts and, and a number of different things that are gonna have to be looked at by the court that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense at this juncture. But, I don't want to belabor that point, but I just wanted to mention it in the context of the attorney general's lawsuit. Um, so at this I, moment, unless the attorney general is able to proceed with all of those hoops um, to make it into a class action and include all districts who have a mask mandate, um, at, unless that happens, any decision in the CPS case would be specific to CPS, Columbia Public Schools, and not necessarily applicable to any other district that isn't specifically named. That's right. And, you know, there, I think there are a lot of strong arguments on behalf of other school districts that they're not similarly situated to Columbia Public Schools in this instance. So that'll be, you know, something that uh, court will have to sort out, I guess. Um, the the last point, and I kind of raised it in our, in our preliminary remarks, but, you know, the governor made a change in his executive order regarding state of emergency last week. At the end of the day, does this, does that have much of an impact on all of this discussion, Emily? You know, it really doesn't, um, because the, you know, the state of, the executive order regarding the state of emergency that was in place, gosh, I don't know what was it, last April or something? Yeah, um, not this past April, but the April before, um, you know, that changed, but we're still under an updated state of emergency under chapter 44. Um, so uh, related to COVID-19 um, as a public health threat. So I don't think that there is much in terms of change that we would be seeing for districts in that regard. So Emily, and just to close this out in the discussion of the Attorney General's lawsuit and um, some of the associated things with 271, what's 
your best advice to school districts that are out there right now uh, in the wake of the filing of the lawsuit and perhaps implications of 271? So I think the best advice is to consider what mask requirements you have in place in your district, whether those have been put before the board, um, and if and when you would want to put those before the board. Um, procedurally, we would advise that it would be best to go ahead and, and do that um, and to have that done every 30 days. If you want to wait um, and not do that until you get a challenge, that's certainly an option. But it would be nice to be able to kind of cut off that sort of 271 procedural argument if possible. All right. I think those are, uh, that's good advice. Um, a lot to think about here, and we'll have to kind of see how things develop, but uh, that's kind of where it sits today. Thanks, Emily, for sharing your time today. And thank you, listeners, for taking the time to listen to Ed Council Insights. We hope you'll follow and share our Ed Council podcast on social media and subscribe to hear our upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council, that's E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.